Alex, thank you very much for joining me on the early days of uh, Micromobility Podcast. It's great to have you and it's great to talk about Drover.ai. Um, I would like to know a little bit more about you, your background, what drives you, and why did you decide to become an entrepreneur? Because it's a 24-7 job, 365. It's basically like being married for life. As an entrepreneur, it's for life. So Yeah, well, um, first of all, it's a pleasure to participate in the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. Um, listen to the previous episodes and, and it seems like good conversation with good people uh, about a, a topic I'm passionate uh, about. So, um, yeah, I'll, I'll give you uh, a, a little bit of, you know, general back on, on, on myself. Um, I am... Uh, originally French and Serbian and uh, French mom, um, Serbian dad. And uh, though I was born in the States, um, I grew up in the South of France for most of my life until about high school. Uh, and, and then ended up in high school in Hawaii, uh, college in Northern California and Spain. Um, and I studied, uh, you know, kind of Spanish literature and European history in college. And, and you know, I guess the, The, the one word I would use to describe myself is uh, I'm, I'm a generalist. I've, I've had multiple careers. Um, what, you know, I live in Los Angeles now and, and I've been here since 1998. What brought me here was the entertainment industry. And I, I spent a good dozen years as, a, as an actor in uh, you know, TV shows and movies uh, in LA. Um, that's how I met my wife and, and kind of why I have roots in Los Angeles now with my family and, and two children. And then in, in around 2010, I got um, recruited by one of my old friends to, to help him with a, uh, a nanotechnology company because uh, he remembered that I, was, that I was very good in chemistry in high school. <laughs> and so long, well, I, I ended up um, you know, being introduced to the world of, of uh entrepreneurship and startups in that manner. And, and um, within about a year and a half, I, uh, I went from just helping part-time to, to running the company for him. Um, and, and it was a business of, of uh, essentially identifying unique um, surface modification technologies to, um, that had a variety of applications from waterproofing electronics to insulation of buildings to uh, making fabrics water resistant Uh, and, and we would license those and commercialize them. Uh, many of these technologies were little known. So I learned about kind of go-to-market strategy and, and obviously marketing positioning uh, and, and creating partnerships with some much bigger brands than, than ourselves um, at the time. And, uh, and so I did that for about four or five years. And, and then another colleague of mine that I met um, in, in that arena Um, got pulled into the mobility sector. And so that was my introduction to mobility back in 2016 uh, at a company called Emotor, which is a, a Chinese company um, that you know, focuses on battery swapping, think uh, Gogoro, but uh, with, with battery swapping cabinets and everything uh, for mopeds. But their first product that they introduced to the US, um, which was my responsibility in, as COO, of the company i was kind of involved in, in a lot of different aspects uh it was a three-wheeled foldable electric scooter with swappable batteries that also doubled as power banks when they weren't powering this this scooter they were tsa compliant so you could fly with them on an airplane right uh, without exceeding 
the yeah the the, the restrictions, and it revolutionized the way I saw the world. And and you know, so I uh, spent a lot of time traveling with this Emoter Go folded up and up in the overhead compartment in airplanes. I would get off the plane and travel cities like you know Dusseldorf and uh, you know, Paris and London on this private, um, personally owned electric scooter. And, you know, I was evangelizing this product. It, it was basically mobility that went with you everywhere you go, right? So you traveled with your own personal mobility device. And, uh, and so, you know, but the value proposition or the, 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 the sales pitch was here, you need to spend somewhere around $1,500 because that's how much it cost. It was you know, fully connected with Bluetooth. It had its own app. I mean, it was way ahead of its time, right? And that was in 2016? Yes. Wow. That's really way, uh, way ahead of its time, really. Yeah. No, it was, it was a really cool engineering product. Uh, I think where it fell short, in, in my opinion, was the kind of um, vehicle engineering side, right? It was designed more uh, as, as an electronics gadget. And that's in part due to the kind of background of the CEO um, you know, involved, whose expertise was in batteries and in intelligent batteries. Um, but it, it, it uh, didn't kind of stand the test of, you know, harsh riding in urban environments. So uh, there were lessons to, to be learned from a vehicle standpoint. And so at, the, at that time, um, there were pressures for, for the company to, to focus on its business in China, which was the battery swapping technology for mopeds. And it's a massive market, as I'm sure you know, you know with uh, over 300 million two-wheeled mopeds that, that their business model was to retrofit into electric, um, uh, you know, or lead-acid batteries into lithium-ion batteries that were compatible with, with their charging stations. So um, the U.S. portion of the business and the micromobility division shut down, and my partner and CEO now of Drover, we launched Clever Mobility. And this was right when Bird came out uh, and had, uh, you know, changed the game because the, the barrier to entry was no longer $1,500, it was $1, right? And, and you get to try this experience and, uh, of, of traveling with micromobility through a city which you know is is completely uh, revolutionary and different than than traveling uh, with an automobile, obviously. So um, we decided we looked at that space and we said, well, we have a lot of experience with kind of vehicles with swappable batteries and um, you know kind of this notion of the three wheeled platform. So clever mobility was founded as a, a technology platform around three things: um, three wheeled. Uh, for stability and, and better appeal to a broader audience. Uh, so older people, people with, uh, you know, kind of less balance or unfamiliarity with two-wheeled balancing could feel comfortable. The swappable battery. And, and the third thing that we realized we needed from an operational standpoint uh, was accurate location tracking, right? For better operational efficiency and for user experience. And so we brought in some folks uh, that we met that um, that claimed to be able to do enhanced GPS uh, that would give us 30 centimeters or less accuracy, even in urban canyons. And um, I didn't know enough about the business or that technology at the time to know that that was extremely challenging. Um, and, and so, you know, long story short, we spent um, two years you know, trying to, to 
achieve that. And it was achievable in a very controlled environment um, for demos and whatnot, but it didn't scale very easily. Um, so fast forward, uh, you know, disagreement with, with partners on direction who wanted Clever Mobility to become an operator. I didn't want to be an operator, uh, fully understanding, you know, I'll, we ended up being an operator and I got to drive vans for 18 days and, and fix scooters and, and do all of the things uh, that, that make you understand the difficulties of the business. Uh, so we, we parted ways and, and uh, we founded Grover in, um, in uh, 2020. Um, and so now it's been wow, almost, uh, almost two years coming up now uh, that, that we've been doing Grover. So I'll stop there. That was kind of a long uh, background. <laughs> No, no, no. It's it's an extremely interesting background uh, because you you actually have a background in Europe um, where where the micro mobility really was booming uh, and is still booming. Uh, you have a, a background in uh, movies, uh, which is also different from other founders in our industry. But yet um, you found a way into our industry. Have experience with hardware, uh, even back back in 2016, which is really, really early on. So I'm sure you have a lot of experience and knowledge in terms of the battery uh, and uh, the battery understanding, because that is something that is very, very important uh, in our industry. Um, so that's a lot of experience that you have even before you started with, with Drover.ai, because obviously you also had the operational experience with Clever. So um, you started Drover.ai in 2020 uh, together with your co-founder. Obviously, it's a software company and you have uh, your own technology. You need to develop the technology and it takes time, right? So uh, how did you go about it to uh, develop, do some iterations to come up with a really market-ready product uh, that Drover is right now uh, and sign one of the biggest uh, American um, micromobility providers. We will get into that uh, later on, but uh, congratulations because that, that, that is one of the biggest and you guys uh, really killed it uh, with that deal. So uh, that's, that's amazing. So before we go into that, I want to know the whole process that went into um, developing your technology uh, because you guys were pioneers. Yeah, uh, well, so we actually um, benefited from from technical uh, you know, work that our CTO and co-founder, Jamie Ahmed, uh, who we knew back when we were at Clever and, and tried to work with in that capacity, um, you know, he had kind of taken conversations that we had had when we were at Clever about these main problems that we had identified in micromobility, right? So accurate positioning and uh, being, being the primary one and, and started to experiment. And so he, he spent time separate from us at Clever Mobility evaluating enhanced GPS solutions. And, and he bumped up against the same problems that we were seeing at Clever. And so he started tackling um, the problem from a different perspective. And that's where he brought in computer vision and edge-based processing to, to effectively answer the question, not what are my precise GPS coordinates, but um, where am I in the context of my surroundings? So we call it contextual location awareness because we're not in pursuit of precise GPS-based coordinates. We position ourselves more like a human being who goes outside and doesn't say, oh, what are my coordinates right now? You look around. 
and you see that the street is a few meters away, there's a bike lane there, and then you are standing on the sidewalk. And so, you know, with predefined categories, right, we can answer a question in real time, am I on the street? Am I on the bike lane? Am I on the sidewalk? Am I in a parking garage? Whatever additional categories uh, are, are potentially um, necessary, we can train our AI to do this. And so, you know, when we founded the company, he had already uh, created a, a functional prototype of this computer vision AI um, product that used sensor fusion. To be clear, we also use GPS in there, but it is not the backbone of our precision or our awareness technology. And so by fusing different inputs, um, the primary one being the camera, he came up with this new way to, uh, to answer the question um, that, that you know, is a regulatory problem, is an operational problem, uh, is a user behavior problem. And, and so we were fortunate to have a really solid prototype to start with. And so that's how we started, you know, again, uh, with our industry experience at Clever, we knew city officials, regulators, we knew all of the competitors in the space, uh, like the spins and limes and birds. And so it was a matter of, of uh, reaching out to our contacts and saying, hey, we know this is a problem. Would you like to see a, a prototype demonstration of our technology? And sure enough, uh, many of them answered that call and, and said yes. Uh, Spin was, in fact, the first to to kind of um, jump in, as it were, and, and really support us in a material way uh, to do what what is, uh, you know, the probably hardest and most challenging part of coming up with a technology um, is to take it from prototype to commercially viable product that has safety certifications, uh, you know, is 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 uh, tested and, and you know, uh, built uh, to survive in the in the real world right so so spin was a was a material partner in doing that because think about it they're owned by ford mobility and they approach this from a hardware standpoint very much from an automotive level of scrutiny so all of the engineers on the call were poking and prodding and saying well what this that and the other and and it was a, a very challenging but rewarding process to make sure that our technology could scale. Yeah, exactly. And I think what um, some people who are listening uh, might not understand is that besides having the technology, you also had physical um, boxes, I believe, that needs to be put on the scooters. Yeah. So actually, you were also involved with hardware, but you need to make those uh, boxes and the cameras, right? And then you need to integrate with each scooter. That's that's quite that's quite a very difficult thing to do. I mean, it's two things that you need to make sure that are aligned and work perfectly with the scooter. I mean, I guess the segways uh, back then, and it needs to integrate. So how did you make sure your software uh, was perfect? You already explained that, but the hardware. Yeah. So so good good call out. Um, you're right. We are primarily a software company in terms of what our proprietary uh, you know IP is, um, but we decided to come up with uh, our path pilot module, which you're right is a little black box that goes on the front of the scooter, and and that integrates with uh, with the onboard systems because it was the quickest way to market. Um, to be able to retrofit onto existing vehicles, we thought was uh, was the quickest way to to prove this out. And and uh, if not, you are 
not only developing your own hardware, which requires its own timeline, but you also have to fold into the timeline of a vehicle design, right? Which can take 12, 18 months and, and making sure. And, you know, so we wanted to deploy as fast as possible. And, and so eventually we will transition away from building our own hardware as a retrofit module and, and in fact, be integrated into the vehicle build with, you know, as long as the, 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 the minimum system requirements uh, are available, i.e. camera and processing power, uh, and then we can tap into uh, onboard systems like cellular connection and GPS that we currently provide for ourselves, right? So we have redundancies in our own retrofit system uh, that we know can can go away. Uh, but for uh, time to market and proving out our technology at scale, we did have to be a hardware company. And that's the part that I'm talking about is going from prototype to fully, you know, now we're on version three of our of our production uh, run, right? And and that takes significant resources, uh, and especially in in during the pandemic, which saw some crazy, um, you know, circumstances around supply chain and availability of components and things like that. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that actually when I when I heard that you started in 2020. Uh, knowing that you also had to develop the box, how did you go about the delays in the factory? Uh, I assume the hardware is made in uh, in China or in Taiwan, or it's an Amer it's an American product. Yes, so that's one of the things. Uh, all of our engineering, uh, prototyping, and manufacturing occurs here in the U.S. We we uh, we build in uh, in Ohio. Um, So that, that was one of the things, given the restrictions of travel, uh, we had to keep it close to, to our engineering teams and our CTO is based in, in Ohio. Uh, and, and that made it much easier um, to, to manage uh, during these challenging times. Yeah, I think that really helped out during the, the pandemic because I know I was trying to get bikes from China, but it took six uh, to nine months just to, to even get bikes. But you said something very interesting um, a few minutes ago. You said that in the future, you would like to have your software already integrated into the hardware, so the, the scooters or the bikes. So would that mean that, for example, you would make a partnership with Segway? Because if that is the case or that is where you want to go, that's really, I mean, they are a big player. Uh, so if you make one, one, one deal or one partnership with like Segway, I mean, the world, the world is yours, right? Uh, is, is, that, is that how you, you see the future? Because, I mean, that is the, that is the perfect way to, to, to take over the market with your solution. Everybody, it's like the, the personal PC, uh, having a PC in every household. Uh, then you will have your software and every Segway, basically. And Segway is the big player. So that's a great, great move, I would say. Well, that's certainly something that we aspire to, uh, and you're right. Segway is is definitely a massive player. They they service both shared um, operators as well as consumer products, and I think that speaks to our broader strategy as well. Is is uh, you know we we have had to work with Segway um, because that's who supplies Spin with their fleets, and and effectively uh, with our add-on technology, they've had to provide us with just power cable and a hole in the stem. Um, but certainly conversations are ongoing to, to basically, um, you know, provide the software to their hardware uh, enable. And so future vehicle uh, 
might be designed not just by Segway, by the way, right? I mean, you have Okai, you have Feishen, uh, you have the consumer brands that, that all build in China, but you also have micromobility companies that are vertically integrated and that design and build their own vehicles. So every, you know, and we're also vehicle agnostic. So, you know, if it's a question of a bike, an e-bike having this on board, well, we will work with the engineering teams and manufacturers of the e-bike um, to integrate what we need um, to, to deploy our technology. Same thing for e-mopeds, right? We can, we can play with e-mopeds as well. Um, so I think, yes, you've tapped into our, our broader strategy. And I would, I would also say that, you know, I think it's our vision that um, down the line, the regulatory environment is unlikely to have or to continue to have separate rules for consumer devices and shared devices. So on the one hand, right now, you have shared device operators that are restricted to 15 miles per hour, 25 kph, uh, have all of these geofences and parking zones and restrictions. But you can buy a device on Amazon for a few hundred dollars that goes 45 kilometers per hour and, and you know, you don't have any restrictions. So, so we think that the regulatory environment is going to have to kind of come together at some point where, where one set of rules applies to all micromobility, regardless of form factor or ownership. And in that scenario, yes, your, your analogy with the PC, we would very much like to be the kind of Intel inside uh, technology that is enabling compliance with regulations um, you know, for, for consumer products as well as, as shared products. Yeah, um, exactly. I think it only makes sense and I think it's only a matter of time. Uh, obviously, the um, you know, government is, is a bit behind uh, as always, but I think it's just a matter of time. Uh, each um, scooter or bike has a certain software like yours. Uh, but what I wanted to also understand is how the backend or how the platform works. Do you see the, 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 uh, the cam, I mean, the, 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 the videos, the pictures uh, of each scooter or how can, how, how do I have to visualize the backend or the platform of Drover.ai? Because I have, I have an image in front of me that you have like a big screen <laughs> um, where you see all the different uh, camera or visions of each scooter. I mean, your, your, your clients, but I guess that is not uh, the case. Uh, I guess you you have a more scalable, <laughs> scalable scalable way of working. So please, please elaborate a little bit on that if that's possible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the way the system is built is that each camera, uh, each path pilot on board a device, is providing you know edge based computing and inferencing. So identifying where it is in the context of its surrounding in real time at the edge. We have onboard storage, but we do not uh, transmit images over cellular bandwidth because that would be very cost prohibitive uh, across thousands or you know, hundreds of thousands of devices. So what instead we share in real time with our operators is a telemetry feed. So an MQTT feed uh, of you know kind of granular location distinction. So. Uh, you know, for each frame that we take and that we inference and that we classify, we share a location. And, and so the, the MQTT feed has information like timestamp, GPS location, uh, but, but also 
the, the kind of category, the predefined categories that we've established. Am I on a street? Am I on a bike lane? Am I on a sidewalk? Am I in a parking garage? And so that feed, our operator customers sit on that and ingest it and can surface real-time notifications to their users via the app, right? We also have speakers on board the path pilot, which um, shares sound files that our customers can, can, can choose, can design themselves, whether it's voice or a sound, to alert users of the behavior that needs to change or you know, parking that is validated or not correct. Um, so combining the, the real-time feedback through sound on board, as well as the MQTT feed, which the operators can use to do a number of things. So they can notify in real time, but they can also visualize, like you're saying, um, you know, a dashboard with each device that is not just showing GPS location, which kind of gives you a heat map understanding of movement. Now think of it this way, any trip that goes from point A to point B we're not only getting a rough idea of the route that was taken, which is what GPS will do for you, but we can tell you how much time was spent on the sidewalk. So 12% of the ride occurred on the sidewalk because for each GPS ping that you receive, you also have that granular metadata of categories, sidewalk, street, and bike lane. So now with different colors, you can visualize a route and show, oh, you know, you can see in red that the user was on a sidewalk in these specific locations in green when they were on the street, in blue when they were in the bike lane. And that really uh, it, it speaks to the kind of our ability to, sh to, um, to bring value on the data side through telemetry. So cities are interested in this data. Operators are interested in this data. You know, what would it mean to you to be able to show to your insurance company with facts, right, to back it up, that sidewalk riding is not as big of a deal as, as they think it is, right? Because they're pricing risk. So if you can show that you can eliminate risky behavior and also back it up with data, right, by our visualizing our telemetry, then you have a much stronger negotiating position and can reduce your insurance pr uh, prices. Cities can be informed about usage of the infrastructure they spend money on. Uh, did I, you know, I spend a million dollars on this bike lane, but it's still being used by uh, delivery vans as, as a delivery zone and it's being blocked in these areas forcing people to go onto the sidewalk when they're riding their bikes or scooters. Well, now we can show, you know, uh, over time that this specific area, maybe the bike lane needs to be better protected or, you know, a lot of other kind of layers of information can come from the data we collect. That's amazing technology, especially for the uh, topics and um, use cases that you explained, also for safety. Uh, but um, I guess the data, do you use a SIM card or the data is sent through the cloud? Uh, and then from the clouds, it's taken to the back end, I guess. That's, that's, a, that it's, that's a bit how it works, like the communication modules and um, IoT modules, I guess, right? So do you have a SIM card, right? Or Yeah, we, we have um, cellular modem on board and, and SIM card, um, as well as GPS of our own. But as I mentioned earlier, those are redundant um, to systems that already exist on the vehicles on board IoT. Um, there's certainly value in that because if you have two GPS feeds, you can maybe triangulate a more accurate position. Uh, if one cellular is not receiving good coverage in one area, maybe the other one is. But we understand that that it's overkill to have these redundant systems. And so eventually, uh, again, as I mentioned, we can transition to using the existing onboard systems um, and integrate uh, locally. 
It's also a possibility, and, and what we've done with SPIN is that we can integrate with the onboard motor controller through the IoT uh, so that the, the operator can slow the scooter down on the sidewalk or disable it completely. So think of, think of the geofences that are currently being used by operators that are GPS-based, right? You can geofence a university campus that says, we don't want scooters on our campus. And you know, GPS is good enough for that because it doesn't matter if you miss the boundary by 10 meters or you know, 30 meters. Uh, but the scooter can be shut down if the scooter enters the university campus. We can do that on a sidewalk level, right? So again, it, it, it creates a, a much a, a change of, of the paradigm here. Instead of, of saying, um, well, in this downtown core area, we're sick and tired of seeing scooters on the sidewalk. So we're going to ask operators to, to uh, cap their speed limit at 10 kilometers per hour, like Paris is suggesting, right? Well, that, that takes away from the user experience. I mean, at some point, 10 kilometers per hour, you might as well walk, right? And so micromobility's value is, is greatly um, impacted here. Whereas we can go to the regulators in Paris as you know, with an operator partner of ours and say, well, instead of Im imposing this kind of blunt speed reduction, just implement our technology and we can ensure that uh, on sidewalks, the speed can be eight kilometers per hour and everywhere else that's appropriate, bike lanes and, and streets, it can be 25 kph. So you get the best of, of both worlds. And then the other thing that we haven't talked about yet is our parking verification. And that's something that's more recent. And the parking compliance is extremely important uh, as well, because you know we are able to provide real-time insight into each and every end-of-ride outcome, right? So when the scooter comes to a, a stop for an end-of-ride, the path pilot shifts from looking for the riding infrastructure, right, streets, sidewalks, and bike lanes, to looking for positive parking outcomes versus negative parking outcomes. We currently have three parking categories that are valid. One is inside of a marked scooter corral using paint or decals on the on the floor. Uh, two is within approximately half a meter of uh, the edge of the sidewalk. So in, in American cities, uh, it's called the furniture and landscape zone. So it's, it's on the outer edge of the sidewalk, which is where they want devices parked. Or three, if it's close enough to a bike rack, a biking infrastructure. Our system can recognize those three and, and give you essentially a parking score. Like, yes, this is good. And, and then anything outside of that is not valid. So what that does is it, a couple things. One, it allows the operator to remove the, the burden of compliance and taking that end of ride photo of the unit from the user. As an operator, I can tell you not all op, uh, users take that photo very accurately, right? Maybe only 20, 25%. So here you create a better user experience by not asking your user to take their cell phone and take a photo um, uh, you can eliminate that because now you have a photo that's coming from onboard the vehicle. And we can surface that photo along with our AI score of the parking job to the operator. And then they, they can decide what to do with that information. If it's bad parking, they can nudge the user to a better outcome in real time saying, hey, you're not properly parked. Please move it to one of these three good places. Um, and if it's properly parked, boom, you're good. You, you get uh, immediate verification and you save money by not having to deploy street teams to roam around the city to look for scooters that are not properly parked, uh, that might be tipped over or whatnot. 
Whereas here, we can immediately tell you if a ride has ended improperly, you have valuable information that allows you to be more targeted about sending out resources um, to go fix the situation and avoid a parking citation, which many cities are, are beginning to, uh, to issue uh, to operators for poorly parked scooters. Exactly. And actually, you explained something that is quite uh, specific and um, uh, for our micromobility industry uh, about corporate uh, um, working together with different um, different types of uh, uh, business uh, units. For example, uh, the IoT, uh, obviously the hardware, and obviously the operator operator who might have their own white label. So you all work together and you ultimately provide the best experience to the end user and to the city and to the whole society. So that is something that is quite, quite um, unique, I would say, in our industry. Uh, and the industry is quite young. So that's, uh, yeah, I, I, can, I cannot wait to see how it will uh, uh, go in the future. Uh, and I was wondering if uh, you are also planning to Uh, work with e-bikes or if you already work with e-bikes and how you would uh, please tell me the whole process of uh, integrating a, a new hardware i know e-bikes are quite they are quite difficult they are quite uh, they are a little bit different than uh, e-scooters uh, e-bikes are, are a whole different story so please uh, elaborate a little bit if you are planning to do e-bikes uh, and how would How are you going to go about it? Uh, obviously, uh, you don't need to tell the secrets, but <laughs> uh, please, uh, I'm quite uh, quite uh, interested in this. Sure. So, by the way, happy to continue this conversation offline with many more specifics. Um, but yes, we are able to to work, as I mentioned, across different devices. So scooters, e-bikes, e-mopeds, anything smaller than a car really is where, uh, where we anticipate um, being of value. Uh, so for e-bikes, you know, the, the overall process is not too different from, from scooters. We approach scooters first because that's what we knew best and, and, uh, and where the immediate application was, was needed. Uh, but for, with an e-bike, for example, we have, uh, um, you know, done some R&D with some players here in the U.S., but it hasn't gone as quickly as, as with uh, scooters because the demand hasn't been as, as high. But with an e-bike, same thing. We need to figure out where on the bike we would mount the path pilot for now as a retrofit solution uh, to how we get power from the vehicle, because we do need power from the onboard battery. And typically that's you know, of, of establishing the kind of connector. Um, it can be a five pin connector that allows for power as well as data um, to, to stream, because the data connection is important for two reasons. One. We get information from the onboard vehicle systems uh, about the speed of the vehicle, and that helps us um, make transitions better. So shifting from riding inferencing to parking inferencing. If we don't get speed, precise speed from the vehicle, we have to get it from GPS signals. And GPS is very noisy. So you, you get potential for, for a worse user experience in that instance. So we need the data from the, from the vehicle speed. And then we also send the, our status uh, of location directly back to the onboard systems, IoT, or potentially even directly to the motor controller that would then enable that um, throttle uh, you know, modulation. And on an e-bike, it's a little bit different, right? Because obviously, if, even if you take the motor away, the user can still pedal, right? So, but at the same time, it also will limit that top, top speed, right? 
Uh, so yes, we can cut the motor off entirely. That's not going to stop a user from riding in a completely forbidden zone because they can pedal under their own power. Um, but it's very similar to, to scooters. And, and uh, you know, we have a whole questionnaire onboarding uh, that our engineers look at in terms of, you know, what are, um, you know, the, the power uh, specs of your battery. And we can accommodate pretty much anything uh, from 24 up to 72 um, volts. And, and then, you know, our engineers take this information and, and we uh, um, exchange information about communication protocols to do the onboard vehicle integration. And we can turn around uh, prototypes very quickly. You know, I think what's important to note uh, about, you know, Drover's approach is that our path pilot is unique um, in comparison to other uh, systems that might be available and that I can send you one right now to Belgium, right? Uh, and it can, we have a version that's powered by a power bank, right? And so that without even doing any of the, of the integration with onboard systems, you can validate the technology and even begin um, training a, a model. So maybe I can talk a little bit about how we go uh, about training our AI models. We have basically what we call a generic AI model that is trained on dozens of cities internationally and, and you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of images are in this data set. And, and so that is our kind of baseline model. I send you a path pilot, you strap it onto your bike uh, with a power bank, and we validate kind of the approximate camera angle that we need and the height off the ground. And, and then you go and you test it, right? So out of the box, our system will recognize infrastructure at a very accurate rate. Right? So very, very accurately, we'll tell you whether it's on a street, sidewalk, or bike lane. What it may struggle with are unique infrastructure elements that are found in your city. So one example of that is that in the US, it's extremely rare for bike lanes to be on the sidewalk itself. In Spain and uh, France, um, that is different. There are bike lanes on the sidewalk. And so our system was confused by that when it first saw that infrastructure in, in, um, in Spain. And so we had to, uh, you know, our, our partners in Spain simply went out and trained. We have a training app that we our partners download and you go out and you take a training ride and you uh, press a few buttons during the training ride. We then download that information from the training ride, our a run it through our AI. We create a new model that is specific to your city, right? In Belgium or Spain or Sweden or, or England or the Middle East. And it includes new data from that city, which we then, in, uh, you know, update to the model over uh, to the device over the air. And then you go back out and you test it and you can see the improvement um, and quantify the improvement of the model and then provide additional training with different weather circumstances. So what's unique about that is that we can um, deploy in a new environment very rapidly because we don't need to go out and pre-map an entire city. Uh, and establish a ground truth. We don't need visual information from an entire city because we've developed a system that's very good at, at generalizing while still being very accurate. Wow. Actually, uh, when I think about it, you have a lot of data in terms of road infrastructure uh, and so on. And this data can be very helpful for, for example, cities. Uh, sometimes they don't know where to invest uh, in the road infrastructure. Uh, they don't know if it's if the bikes or scooters are used there. They don't know uh, if the road is good in that place. But if Drover has, you know, or if a 
spin is operating in that city. Obviously, uh, Drover has a lot of data in terms of the road infrastructure. Have you thought about maybe uh, a, a side business model or uh, b besides micromobility where you would offer um, your mapping data or visualized mapping data, uh, I would say, or contextual uh, data to either uh, regulators or other partners? Because I think that is something that is extremely valuable, extremely. Yeah, so good for you. Uh, that is definitely, you know, what uh, part of our roadmap, right? And so initially, our business model is that we have customers like the scooter operators or bike share operators. But then you're right, we have an opportunity in partnership with those customers because we are using their their real estate, um, as it were, in terms of the vehicles that are that are being deployed to collect that visual data and download it when it's connected to a higher bandwidth and, and start looking at it for potential value um, and monetization uh, beyond that, right? So, so the, the ultimate goal is like, yes, can we help cities, um, you know, survey infrastructure or do curb mapping, uh, you know, or do object detection, identify where all the, you know, the condition of their bus stops or bike racks and things like that. And, and in partnership with our customers, you know, from uh, whose devices we are collecting this information, monetize that. And ultimately, we, can, we are hoping to be able to subsidize the deployment of micromobility, right? Um, you know, because we're able to, to generate revenue from the, the data that we're collecting from these deployed assets, right? The, the sensors, sensors on wheels, uh, you know, Horace did you from micromobility, uh, likes to call it the smartphone on wheels, you know, that's effectively correct. You know, you have um, multiple sensors connected to power and, uh, and the internet roving around the city. Uh, the kind of potential is, is really limitless in terms of, of what can be done with that data. You just have to find the right insights because um, that's where the, the value lies is in, is, is in being able to provide an insight that somebody will pay money for, not just a pile of raw data. Exactly. And uh, I really, really love, um, obviously, your technology, but also your business model, because obviously uh, your partners pay for your uh, solution, but you as a company also learn from your partners using your solution. So that is uh, an ever, ever learning um, growth that your company uh, can have because the more the more um, uh, e-scooters that you have using using your pathfinder the more data that you can uh, put into your ai i guess and then uh, you can improve your ai from that i guess you are planning to come to europe because europe is really um, where it's happening right now uh, or in the past few years if you look at the valuations of some electric scooter companies uh, going to over a billion <laughs> in just a few years. Uh, so do you have any plans um, of um, entering the European market? Because there's a lot of business uh, here for Drover.ai, uh, I'm sure. Uh, yes, so that's the short answer is, is we have ongoing discussion with, with some of the biggest players in the European market. Um, you know, Spin uh, has, has uh, as one of our partners, has already done demonstrations in markets in Europe. Unfortunately, uh, they, they just announced that they are kind of contracting and, and focusing on, 
on competitive markets that um, uh, you know that that only offer a limited number of permits. So I, I don't know where that will impact uh, the most, but that's a scenario in which Drover's technology uh, really um, you know is valuable because in a competitive scenario where you have 15 companies applying but only three permits available, the best technology is needed to stand out, right? And so we we really help spin secure, valuable, profitable markets in that in that respect. Um, and similarly, you know, in in, in Europe, uh, we've had our technology being tested in in a good dozen markets, and and uh, we have evidence that what I'm telling you about our our system being very um, good at scaling rapidly and learning new environments very quickly to be deployed quickly is 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 in fact uh, a huge benefit. Uh, so I can't make any announcements now, but we're definitely um, very excited about about coming to Europe and working with some of the biggest partners uh, in, in the market over there. That's, uh, that's great to hear. Uh, looking forward to that. Uh, also, Europe is a little bit different than the United States, I would say, because every single city, every single country in, in Europe has a different road infrastructure. For example, if you go to East Europe... Uh, it's way different than if you go to Germany, you go to Brussels, and then if you go to Spain or Portugal, uh, it's even way different. Uh, so how how uh, are you planning on dealing with that? Because it's uh, it's so different, but they are so close to each other, uh, and every uh, almost every micro mobility player is active in all those regions. So, for example, if you have a client, uh, they will be active in Spain, they will be active in Germany, they will be active in Poland. But those are three different uh, road infrastructures. Um, how, how will you deal uh, with that with your AI and your, uh, with the Pathfinder? Because that's quite interesting to, to understand. Uh, yeah, no, that's a great question. Fundamentally, as I mentioned, we have kind of this, um, you know, generic model that is composed of all of the different geographies that we have. Um, and, and that is loaded onto each and every path pilot. But then for every new market we go into, that might be different than the previous one. We have that generic model and then the additional training data that is specifically collected from that city. And then once you deploy, once an operator deploys, we can pull that data directly from consumer rides. So initially, it is something that, uh, that a, a, a staff member or one of our staff flies out to a location to do the initial training uh, for demos and for, for kind of the initial rollout. Uh, we've done that across the U.S. And, and in some places in Europe. And then beyond that initial training, once the fleet is deployed and you have, let's say, 500 or 1,000 vehicles out there, well, we can spot check and take information from rides that are, that are being done by your customers. And then we take those rides and we run them through our um, through our machine learning uh, algorithm, and then we continue to improve the model over time in each uh, geography. So the fleet that's in Lisbon is going to have an AI model that is Lisbon specific that has our generic model plus all of the information from Lisbon, which is going to make it work really well in Lisbon. And then the model in in you know Krakow is going to have uh, its own AI model that's continuously improving based on information collected in that city that has the generic model, but then all of the Krakow model, uh, data that is being collected. Does that make sense? So we can, it doesn't matter how different the infrastructure is, uh, we, we are 
tr training and improving the model in each specific environment as we go. But your model uh, has so much data and understands um, the environments. Um, do you plan on making an, or, or predicting uh, certain things? For example, predicting where uh, people will go and park their scooter, for example, because you have so much data on where people previously parked their scooter, whether it was on sidewalk or not, in that certain specific area. Uh, I, I guess in the future you, you, you might be able to, or you, now you can already do, I don't know, to say, okay, uh, it might be likely that this um, user in this area will probably park the scooter in that uh, specific um, spot, because that is what's happened in the past so many times. Uh, that's just an example, but I'm just uh, wondering if you um, are planning to also do predictions because you have so many data uh, on, 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 um, yeah, on, on the environment and the people, uh, but you could also use it for predictions. That's a, a good observation. I think that, uh, number one, it's certainly something that we, that we can do, but I think that currently operators, if they're not doing that themselves, uh then they have that data it's gps based operators are already doing that and they're they're using kind of predictive um you know ai models to help operational um, efficiency and increase ridership uh so the so predictive uh, you know there are companies also that are doing this specifically and offer this service one that comes to mind is zoba uh, so zoba's entire approach is using just that is is, is using historical data among a, a combination of other things to help uh, predict demand and optimize uh, operations. So it's not our core competency, um, uh, but you know, again, sitting on top of our MQTT feed, right? The telemetry coming off of our units, there's nothing stopping our customers from using that data to add to, to their, um, their algorithms that might be helping them with operational efficiency. So yes. Wow, exactly. Um, one thing, that uh, really caught my eye. The first time I got to know uh, Drover.ai uh, was an article I read about Spin. And then they talked about uh, a partnership with Drover.ai. And then I looked into Drover and I was like, wow, this is uh, a new company. And they already have such a big legendary deal um, with uh, a Ford-owned company uh, like Spin. Uh, can you maybe explain a little bit how you were able to uh, to get the deal with Spen? Because it's quite, uh, I mean, it's 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 a legendary deal. I would say uh, you have uh, one of the biggest um, biggest micro mobility operators, especially in, in, in the United States, but also overall in the world. Um, but you just started in 2020, but yet uh, you have such a big, big, um, big partner that is. Uh, I have to say that is quite impressive. And uh, when I saw that, I was like, uh, really, when I saw that, I was like, okay, uh, probably the people behind the company uh, are quite, um, um, yeah, very motivated people who, who, who can make a deal uh, <laughs> deal done. So Yeah, well, thank you. You're, you're, you're very nice. Um, you know, the, the short answer is that we had a per personal relationship from our days um, back at Clever. Uh, with almost every U.S.-based micromobility company, and uh, that was part of our initial outreach. I reached out uh, directly to Ben Baer, who wasn't 
CEO at the time of, of, uh, of Ford, but uh, chief business officer. And, and, uh, and so he was intrigued by the technology and we set up a demo and we actually flew up to San Francisco um, or drove up actually, because I had the scooter with me. And, uh, and, and we, we set up a demo of our prototype and they were very impressed. They had their whole, uh, the CTO was there and, and they tried to trick the system um, you know, riding it everywhere and seeing how quickly it reacted. Because again, this isn't the first time that people have tried to solve this problem, right? It's, it's, it's a known problem. Uh, and a lot of people have made claims about accuracy and, and technology that does this, but the, you know, there's, um, there's a, there's a difference between what gets claimed and what actually is true. So I think the reason we were able to, to succeed is that we were able to prove our technology very compellingly. Uh, in person for, for these customers. And Spin, credit to them, I think they, they saw an opportunity to be a leader in the space in, in, in basically supporting the kind of vision that we have, which is we want cities to be able to embrace micromobility. And it's impossible for cities to do that as long as micromobility continues to be in violation of existing laws. I think that's a really important distinction because many new technologies that come to market have to, um, you know, lobby the regulatory space or, you know, the lawmakers to create new rules to accommodate them. Think of sidewalk delivery robots and things that have never really existed. They need new rules. There's nothing in the books that governs how these things can operate. But it's a different scenario for micromobility. There are already rules in 95% of cities that say you cannot ride these things on sidewalks, not even bikes, right? But more importantly, there's a bigger rule in the United States, it's called the Americans with Disabilities Act. It's a federal law that says you cannot block the sidewalk or the right of way because it's in violation of people that have disabilities, whether it's visually impaired or if you're uh, wheelchair bound or some other issue. If you have scooters parked in the middle of the sidewalk or fall on, fallen over, you can get sued, right? The city gets sued, the operator gets sued. And this American law has been copied by over 180 countries globally. So pretty much globally, it's illegal to block the public right of way. So our parking compliance and, and you know, riding on sidewalks being an, uh, a danger to people with disabilities, our technology is really in service of existing laws. We don't need new regulations to accommodate our growth. And SPIN understood that and, and said, okay, well, we will team up with you to go to cities and tell them, hey, we have technology now that can reduce your worries, reduce your exposure, your risk uh, in embracing micromobility. So now you can maybe go from only 500 devices to 5,000 to meet the demand because it can be done responsibly and safely now. So, so that's how we got the deal done with, with Spin. And obviously <clears throat> that drew attention from, from others in, in the space. And uh, uh, you know, I think we've benefited from from that exposure. And, you know, now we have over twenty five hundred devices deployed across uh, eight cities and, and growing. Uh, we have very strong demand uh, and we're very proud of, of, of the, the work our team has done because we're not really focused as a company on making bold PR claims or having articles, um, you know, an announcing partnerships. We really are, are focused on delivering technology that works. Uh, that, that helps with operational efficiency, with regulatory compliance, with user safety, 
Um, and, and if press or, you know, coverage comes as a result of our work uh, and, and real deployments, then we're happy about it. Uh, exactly. And also all, uh, um, also credits to spin to actually um, being able to see um, the added value of um, the, um, the safety and the, and the technology so early on. Because I remember back then, uh, all the micromobility were just thinking about deploying more, um, more regions and just growing and just growing, growing. They were not all thinking about safety. Um, or this type of uh, technology. So also credits to Spin and the team to actually be um, visionary in a way because I think they were one of the first. Um, I don't know any any other uh, micro-ability uh, company that was using such uh, such technology uh, back then. So that is um, yeah credits to the to the whole team for um, envisioning the future because that's where the future is heading. If you look where we are right now. Uh, you would say that they were ahead of the time, right? So if you see the new competitors that are, um, you know, coming up as well, it's always a good thing if uh, new competitors uh, pop up. It means that the market and the value is validated. Uh, and Drover.ai was obviously, uh, I think, the first to actually provide a software like this that works. <laughs> Because uh, it, there's a difference between saying that it works and just providing something and then working on it until it works, or actually providing something that actually works already. That's a huge difference. It's, that's actually uh, quite true. And, and you know, it's even more than that, um, because even once you have a prototype and you can do a successful demo for a city with your technology, what I've found um, to be the case is that sometimes city officials or whoever is evaluating a new technology doesn't fundamentally understand the difference between having one unit or two units that can do something in a controlled demo that has been set up and for success, right? And just uh, having a production unit and take it anywhere and test it randomly, right? In the most challenging environment without a predetermined demo location. And that's really where we excel is, is if, if you take our technology and you take it somewhere where it's never been, Uh, it's going to be able to do what we claim it does uh, without kind of prior help. But then city officials also don't understand that maybe having two devices able to do this is still probably at least a year away from having a productized, safety certified, CE marked, UL listed product that can be deployed across thousands of vehicles. And so when, when some companies uh, roll out a new technology or put out articles about Uh, safety technology that that they're bringing to market, the question to ask is when, right? Uh, is it is it now? Can you deploy it next week? Um, and how long will it take to to integrate? Is it available across uh, several thousand vehicles? Um, how much time do you need to get your system to work across the entire city, not just this one block where the demo is happening? Wow, exactly. Because, yeah, I mean, You need to put in a lot of work before you can actually deploy it uh, on a large scale because it needs uh, time and effort. So um, besides the competitors um, that are in your own uh, markets, I think there are also some super apps, I would say. Um, and I believe they like to do things in-house uh, and um, you know they like to do their, their, their own technology in-house. Do you think that these super apps um, might be um, 
a competitor and and the future uh, especially in Europe there are some uh, big startups like uh, bolt to to name to name to name one um, and I think they like to do a lot of things in-house or do you feel like they would um, become a competitor in a way or um, how, how do you feel about that because with so much money going into the into the industry at some point uh, obviously um, um, startups um, you know might feel like they they could uh, do it themselves uh, obviously they have a lot of money to burn um, they have the team uh, so do you see this as a threat or how do you look at uh, look look at this yeah I, I mean I, I love that that question uh, you're right there are lots of companies with a lot of resources but I'll answer it by saying that even historically, when uh, Lime was was in the space with a ton of money, Uber was in the space with a ton of money, that's a super app. Uber even had a division called the New Mobility Robotics Division. They called it Nemo, right? And its sole purpose was to come up with like cutting edge technology in-house, including precise positioning or self-balancing bikes and things like that. And the Nemo division uh, was unsuccessful in, in getting like high precision location technology or sidewalk detection, despite all the resources that Uber had. And then unfortunately, uh, you know, very skilled team, obviously, they got disbanded when when the whole Uber Lime, uh, you know, deal uh, at the beginning of the pandemic happened. And, and Uber's um, micromobility assets became uh, Lime's. And so that got that transferred. And you know, so, so it's not like people haven't tried to solve this problem or won't continue to try solving this problem in different ways. And we welcome that. You know, I think fundamentally we want innovation to continue as rapidly as it is in the space. There are going to be different ways to solve this problem. We uh, are fans, obviously, of our, our approach. It doesn't mean that we don't think Luna uh, can achieve, you know, some success and, and also solve the problem. We, we hope that they that they succeed as well. Uh, to your point, some operators are going to choose to do this internally. You know, Bird announced that uh, that they are going to be working with uBlocks on enhanced GPS, uh, and they're going to try to solve that via GPS. We don't think that's the right approach. That's certainly um, something that 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 can be done. Um, you know, probably not as as uh, successfully, but we we don't need to get into the technical details. Uh, and the same thing with, with uh, Super Pedestrian, they acquired um, a company called Navmatic, who was also focusing on enhanced GPS for precision, right? And, and without getting too deep into the details, let's just assume, uh, and it's a big assumption, right? That you can achieve 10 centimeter uh, or better accuracy at a low price point in really dense urban environment, right? Let's say that that challenge has been solved. It hasn't, but let's just say it has which is what Bird and, and uh, Super Pedestrian are, are banking on. The question then becomes, what is your ground truth? Now that you have precise coordinates, where does the street end and the sidewalk begin? Because the, the, the precision coordinates are useless unless you have a ground truth layer, a map, within which to position yourself, right? And so no, no city has that currently, so who is responsible for creating that and then maintaining it over time as cities evolve? The sidewalk moves, new construction happens, a bike lane pops up where it wasn't before. 
So if your system isn't dynamic, then it's a huge data management nightmare to, to create that and maintain it across dozens or hundreds of cities. So, you know, I think that that speaks to kind of our approach in being more adaptive to change, not relying on ground truth or the availability of ground truth. And that allows us to scale really rapidly and grow with, with our customers. So again, technology innovation is great. I hope that other people try to solve this problem because it needs to, uh, to be solved. Uh, and we'll we'll just see where everyone ends up. Yeah, exactly. I have uh, I have a similar opinion as you um, regarding this, uh, and I will just give you an example. Um, it's extremely difficult to be a hardware company and a software company. You, uh, it's not easy to manage both, especially in micromobility. A lot of micromobility operators try to make their own scooter or their own e-bike. Did not work out because those are two different businesses and. It's extremely difficult, and I think it might be the same case uh, when it comes to uh, this um, very advanced technology like uh, Drover.ai. Yeah, you're, you're correct. I mean, all, all of these companies have um, multiple business divisions. They are hardware-focused, software-focused, operational. You know, in, it's, it's extremely intensive to run operations on these. And then you have the whole customer service side of things. So. You know, if, if you have the bandwidth and resources to, to get the talent and, and, and create new technologies at the same time, more power to you. That's, that's fantastic. But you make a, a good point is that there's room for, uh, for companies that specialize in, in specific um, projects and problems to solve. Um, and, and uh, you know, integration is, it becomes easier. And then, you know, the good news is that the companies with all the big money, they can just uh, potentially acquire these smaller companies that are solving problem so that's that's an option always for people exactly after burning after burning a lot of cash then they can uh, <laughs> acquire companies i want to know um how you experienced or industry because you've been in it since 2016 obviously you saw how it grew immensely uh, i believe from 2018 up until 2020 it grew very very big uh, how did you experience that and how do you see the future? Uh, I think in our industry, it's quite uh, difficult to, um, to talk about the next 12 months because a, a lot of things happen in, in, in 12 months. So uh, how, how would you see the next six months, for example? Because I know uh, the next six months, new batteries will come out, uh, new, new, new hardware, uh, new things, uh, quite exciting. But uh, I would love to, to know how you experienced the whole growth because you've been in it since uh, a long time. But also, how do you see the future? Uh, sure. Well, you know, the whole growth piece of it was, I think you've experienced this as well as a smaller company that, you know, again, I, I shared with you my background. I came from uh, many different places. I, I did not um, have any experience in the mobility space before. So it's not like I was an U Uber alumni or a Lyft alumni or came from bike sharing. Um, so, so founding a company and, and trying to raise funds, even in a very, um, you know, kind of free flowing, uh, market, like, like it was in the early days of micromobility, um, you know, Venture capitalists don't often bet on people that that uh, that don't have a track record in that industry or that don't come from you know the kind of predictable places. And I feel like you probably have a similar experience. 
on top of, of you know, also uh, not being, you know, Caucasian in, in, a, in a space. Uh, yeah, although I worked at Uber Eats, helped launch Uber Eats in, in, in Brussels, but <laughs> still no funding anyways. So, so yeah, you, you have that you, you have that going for you. Um, but, you know, it's challenging as, as the smaller player in, in the field. Uh, so, you know, I, uh, it wasn't always easy to get um, funding, but we were, we were able to, to bootstrap. At Drover, we've actually, you know, been very successful. We've raised, uh, uh, you know, some money, but we've been successful in growing on on the the back of our customer engagement and and funds from our customers ordering devices and deploying them. And so, you know, that's that's been, um, you know, the biggest endorsement is our our customers really believing in in the product and being willing to uh, to help uh, our growth with with payments, right? And, uh, but, you know, um, as to where, where I see this going, uh, you're right. You know, the, the industry evolves super quickly. I, I feel like, um, especially in Europe, there's a really strong support for infrastructure. Um, you know, Milan just announced the 750 kilometers of new bike lanes that are all connected. I mean, that's phenomenal. You know, cities like Paris, um, kind of removing cars from from the the, the core downtown areas uh, London opening up to micro mobility I'm really encouraged by by these cities kind of being more open to mode shift and and uh, allocating space for this and I think that's really going to open up the the possibilities right for new form factors maybe covered pods you know that that help with um, weather issues and and uh, climate um, issues because the seasonality of the business in some markets is is uh, is, is an important factor uh, so I look forward to to innovation on, on the hardware side uh, and also on the business model side I really feel you know I wrote an article back in 2018 in January um, I think uh, talking about scooters as part of public transit you know, I really feel like uh, like you know public transit systems, should um, you know really incorporate micromobility, bike share, scooter share, whatever, as part of the existing fare system uh, to to complete that first and last mile, and and not have it be uh, the private sector that is competing for pricing. It should be part of the public, uh, and then you hire you, you hire operators to run the the fleets. But it becomes a much more integral and integrated um, part of the transportation system. I would really like to see some some initiatives in, in that regard. Exactly. I think it's a, a matter of time until it will have to be like this because there has to be a balance between the different modes of transport. Um, because sometimes uh, companies try to say we want to replace the car or we want to replace this. But you cannot replace the car because the car has its own um, added value for a specific need at a specific time. Um, so, I, like, like what you said, um, they will need to work together at some time. Uh, all credits to uh, Drover.ai. You know, you have some companies that need funding to develop their products and try to get money. But actually, you just told me that uh, Drover.ai is growing uh, based on the clients paying for the product. And I think that is uh, a path to achieve greatness because there's nothing better uh, to have than your clients actually loving your product and uh, funding your growth because that means more than an investor giving you money 
because the clients really get the added value themselves from, from your products. So it's a two-way relationship. And um, I feel like that is uh, one of the ways of achieving greatness. And not a lot of startups uh, and or industry uh, can do that. Uh, they often first go and get funding. Then with the funding, they try to, to make money. But if you can make money before you, you even need any funding to grow, uh, I think that is, a, that is a way to achieve greatness. So. Well, thank you. I appreciate you, you having me on, uh, on the podcast and, and letting uh, me share a little bit of, uh, about um, our story uh, and a little bit about my personal background. Uh, and uh, I wish you the best of luck as well and, and, and smooth uh, for, for you to, to experience some, some of that growth uh, in your market. Thank you very much. Uh, as always, uh, trying, uh, trying very hard with smooth and uh, I strongly believe uh, we are the best <laughs> still. Uh, so we will see where it goes. And um, it was great to have you on. Great to have your background story as well. Um, to, to know that you, you were actually also have some background in Europe, uh, which is a nice thing because, you know, uh, Europe uh, needs you, uh, needs Rover.ai. If you see how much money they are investing in uh, mobility and bike lanes, uh, some, some scooters and bikes need to ride on these bike lanes, right? And they all need the technology of Drover.ai. So we are expecting Drover.ai in Europe uh, anytime soon. So you're all, you're, you're all welcome. We will see you, we will see you soon in, in 2022. Once you launch in, in Europe, then we can do a, a part two of the podcast. Uh, and then we can discuss the, the success of the launch in Europe, if that sounds, uh, sounds good. Sounds good. Uh, and I see you're having um, John Rosson, uh, our one of our advisors on board uh, your your podcast. So he's actually a Grover advisor. Tell him I say hi. I'm extremely excited to to have him on the podcast because we are actually um, uh, Smooth City is one of the 26 uh, mobility pioneers of uh, 2020, I mean, 2021, 2022 uh, of Commotion uh, LA. So it only makes sense to to have him on the podcast. I have a lot of questions. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I have a lot of questions about his book as well. So, yeah, sounds great. Uh, well, uh, Alex, thank you very much for your time and uh, looking forward for your launch uh, in, in Europe, uh, your continuous improvements uh, for our societies and uh, how you're pushing our industry forward with the technology. Uh, and I, wanna, I, wanna, I just want to thank you and your team for everything that you're doing for the for the society and also pushing the industry forward because before Drover.ai, Luna and other companies, nobody really cared about safety and these kind of things. But since you guys uh, are here, everybody now uh, sees this as a standard as they should. So thank you very much for that. Thank you. I appreciate you uh, and, and all the kind words and, and praise. Hopefully we get to meet uh, in person soon. Yeah, exactly. All right. Thank you very much. And uh, everybody, thanks for uh, listening. Uh, please subscribe uh, on all platforms, the early days of micromobility. And thank you very much.